in uh, therapy several years ago when I learned the pole theory. Anybody know the pole theory? Pole theory is this. If you walk across a playground and you lean up against the pole and the pole doesn't move, you just lean against the pole. But if you walk across a playground and you lean up against a pole and the pole moves, people will wiggle that pole and wiggle and wiggle and wiggle until it comes out of the ground. It's like it's just kind of human nature. If something moves, like we're going to keep moving it. Um, when I was growing up, when people pressed against me, I wiggled a lot. Consequently, I got bullied a lot, which is probably why I was in therapy, or at least one of the reasons I was in therapy at that point in time, because people pushed and I moved. And I learned some things through the process of um, going through therapy and reflection and prayer that um, brought me to a point where I didn't wiggle anymore. And at least I didn't wiggle on the outside anymore, right? <laughs> Maybe there was still some wiggling going on the inside, but it literally ended my bullying problem. Which brings us to Psalm 3. I'm sure you see the connection, right? Psalm 3. This is not one of my favorite psalms. I just want to say that because almost every week when I introduce a psalm, I say, this is one of my favorite psalms. This is not one of my favorite psalms. This is, I love the psalms that are about worship, Psalm 100, Psalm 145 uh, through 150. I love the psalms that are about longing and seeking God, Psalm 42, Psalm 40. I love the, the psalms that, that declare God's glory and God's victory over creation, psalms like Psalm 46, Confession of Sin, Psalm 32. Psalm 3 is about enemies. And, and since I've solved my pole problem, I'm relatively faux-free in my life. I, I mean, I'm sure every once in a while I rub people the wrong way, and, and to be quite honest, sometimes people rub me the wrong way. But I've kind of managed a way of dealing with that so that I'm not, like, wiggling and then getting pushed more and more, and I can also be respectful of other people and their differences and, and communicate across those kinds of things. And, and I just, when I think about enemies, I, I don't have a boatload of enemies. So I, when I read the Psalms about enemies, it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of just easy to, to, to move on to the next one. The occasion of enemies is so prevalent in the Psalms that while this enemy Psalms aren't my favorite, if I'm going to be honest and, and preach the Psalms, I can't ignore them forever. At some point, I have to come to one of those enemy Psalms and say, hey, here's why they're so prevalent in the Scriptures. So here it is, Psalm 3. Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, the glory, my glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I 
wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all the enemies on the jaw, break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. It's a psalm of David. And when David says, Lord, how many are my enemies? You'll notice in the text, it does not have a question mark at the end of it. He's not asking, Lord, how many enemies do I have? He knows exactly how many enemies he has. It's an exclamation point. God, I've got a lot of enemies, a lot of people pressing up against me. Rarely in the Psalms do we get context. Most of them are just like, we get some like notes about using them in, in hymns and different references. Very few tell us the context of when the Psalm was written. This is one of the few that does. A Psalm of David, when he fret, fled from his son Absalom. Absalom had staged a rebellion against his father to overthrow his throne. And when David says, tens of thousands assail me, he literally meant tens of thousands of people were pursuing him. The battle that resulted from this um, conflict, from this rebellion, led to 20,000 battlefield casualties. So a lot of people have risen up against David. What is an enemy? Webster's says one that is antagonistic to another. One who is antagonistic to another. One seeking to injure, overthrow, or confound an opponent. Opponent, Or it doesn't necessarily have to be a person. It can be something harmful or deadly. Jesus' mission was life. He says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Anything that becomes an obstacle to life in its fullness is an enemy. Anything or anyone who stands in the way of your best life is keeping you from something that you were made for, is controlling you in some way, control is overthrowing, is, is assuming power over a person's life, injuring, confounding, confusing, anything that gets in the way of your best life is an enemy. Now we have to be really careful here because we're not always really good at defining what our best life is. We had a lengthy conversation uh, yesterday in our house about how often we long for things, seek things, pursue things that actually aren't good for us. So we can be wrong about that. We need to be a little bit humble in this. But things that really get in the way of the life that God meant for us to have is a foe. Now, under that definition... How many are your foes? How many things, how many people get in your way? People who are in positions to manipulate 
or to control. Maybe, maybe not out of malice, but simply in pursuit of their own life, it rubs up against the life that you desire. Some of us have enemies from the past that continue to disrupt our present and our future. Voices in our head that say we don't deserve that life. That we're too weak or too broken, too shameful, too lost, too far gone to even think about life. Some of us are our own worst enemies. Doubt, fear, anxiety, habits, shame, regret. Now, you might wonder, does that stuff really count as an enemy? How elusive is life to the fullest? For you? How hard is it? Are, are you thriving every day? You wake up on, on Monday morning and you're like, here we go, another week, here we go, another day, and you jump into your day and you're looking forward to it. Or do you find yourself maybe not so much thriving as just trying to survive? Now, when you think about your week on Monday morning, you're just thinking, Friday, or you're living for the next weekend, or you're living for the next vacation, or you're living for the next stage of life. Why is it so hard? Why is life so hard for so many people for so much of the time? Have you come to a place in your life where you just, you don't even think about this anymore. It's like, I'm saying this this morning. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I guess that. But, you know, that's just, that's just life. That's just the way it is. You've just come to accept all the things, all these obstacles are just the way life is. There's nothing I can do about it. I just have to get on and get over it. And how much does that sound like David's tormentors? who were saying to him, God will not deliver him. God will not rescue him. This, the, this battle that he's engaged in, there is no help. Okay. But still, David was a king, right? And, and that's a pretty big deal. He's leading a nation. He's dealing with an insurrection. It seems a little melodramatic to compare my situation to David's situation. You go back to Genesis chapter 1, you read the beginning of the story. It's a story of life. It's summed up this way in Psalm 8. What are mere mortals? Not what are Davids. What are mere mortals? What are the people like you and me who wake up in a bed on, on a, you know, in a morning and get up and put on our clothes and take a shower, brush our teeth and go to work? What are mere mortals that you should think about them, speaking to God? Human beings that you should care for them. Yet you made them 
only a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge over everything you made, putting all things under their authority. Someone who's in charge of something, someone who has authority over something, is someone who is ruling. This psalm in Genesis chapter 1 says that, that God created us to be the kings and queens of the earth. Which means the nature of our realm is different. But we were all made to rule. The flocks and the herds, all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the currents. Kings and queens of the earth under God's sovereign rule. How's that going for you? Jesus says in the same context, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, that there is an enemy. And that that enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. If you believe the things that Jesus says, you see that he was going to come, that he was going to die on the cross, that his blood was going to be shed for the forgiveness of your sins, that when he was raised from the grave to new life, that he was going to raise us with him to new life, that he was going to heaven, and at the end of the day, he's going to return and restore his kingdom over all things. If you believe all of that stuff, this is another thing that Jesus says. You have an enemy, and he has an agenda, and that agenda is to steal, kill, and destroy the life that you were made for. Your reign, your rule. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's not just a, a run of bad luck. You're opposed. Taylor Swift says, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem, it's me. It's just me. I'm the reason that my life isn't working out. I'm the re it's my fault that it's not going well. If I could just get my act together. David had a hand in his problem. Right? It, it didn't like pop up out of the air or like magic. He had actually done things that led to Absalom's rebellion. David's um, I'm sorry, Absalom's sister was raped by one of, other, one, of, one of David's other sons. Now, David had a lot of wives, so it wasn't the same mom, but it was David's son raped Absalom's sister. David was furious, but David didn't do anything. Absalom didn't let it go, and so when he had the opportunity, he killed the brother who raped his sister. And he went into voluntary exile, but David never addressed that problem either. So the rebellion that took place took place largely because of David's reluctance to deal with the problem. He had a hand in it. 
But now that he's facing thousands of assailants, what does he say? He says, oh man, you know what? This is my fault. I blew it. So I just have to take my lumps. I just have to make it through. I just have to find a way to survive. Absolutely not. David cries out. He clears from the, the fog from the battlefield. It's me, yeah, but it's not just me. And you all have your me stories, but it's not just you. And as long as we ignore the opposition, as long as we pretend that it's just me, we come to understand our lives in ways that lead us to wrong conclusions, to wrong solutions. If my life is falling apart and it's just me, then it's up to me to fix it. All the while, heaping condemnation on myself. How does David fight back? In spite of his failures, David names the battle. He identifies it. I have many foes. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. It's me, but it's not just me. It's you, but it is not just you. It won't help. It's too far gone. God will not deliver me. David rejected the psychological warfare. He cries out for help. Arise, Lord, deliver me, my God. Strike all of my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. If no help is coming, it's up to me. David believes that God will deliver him. Paul opens the door to the battle that maybe is a little easier for us to identify with than David fighting a rebellion against his kingdom. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about a life-thwarting internal battle says, I want to do what is good. I want to do the things that bring me life. I want to do life. But I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. He's saying, there is an enemy, and it is in me, but it is not me because it is distracting me, pulling me away from the things that bring me life and leading me into the things that don't bring me life. And so he sets his sights on defeating that enemy, not beating himself up. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? He says, I can't win. Who will save me? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Paul says, I can't save myself. And it's me. It's not just me. Thanks be to God because he sent Christ into the world. That Jesus is the final answer to David's cry for help. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the law and prophets. Got a battle. Cry out for help. And then, before the battle has happened, even, David declares victory. From the Lord, I've asked, from the Lord comes deliverance. From the Lord comes deliverance. And again, turning to Romans chapter 8, Paul spells out for us what that deliverance looks like. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, and just as God raised Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this name, by this same Spirit living within you. Get the words? He, the Spirit living in you, will give life, life, life to your mortal bodies. Paul continues, the battle isn't over, but the outcome is decided. What we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us later, for all creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal his children, who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. It will come. Later in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, okay, we're not there yet. The day is coming, but between here and now, know this. Everything that happens in the course of your life, I am going to use, God says, towards that end goal. To where this story is going. Nothing will be wasted. All of your heartache, all of your heartbreak, all of your trauma, all of your drama, nothing will be wasted. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. With, you're with God. You are not alone. You are not forgotten. You are not forsaken. And everything that you're going through, God will use. He concludes, Romans chapter 8, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble? or calamity, or are persecuted, or hungry, or destitute, or in danger, or threatened with death. Romans 8, 37, no, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Overwhelming victory. And then I love what David does after he cries out for help. He takes a nap. I lie down and sleep. I awake again because the Lord sustains me. Sleep comes up often in the Psalms. 
as something that we are able to do when we understand that God can run the world without us. He can even run our world without us and we can wake up again and walk and live in the fullness of life. Try and do that on three hours sleep, right? That in itself is an enemy. Three, I woke up at three something this morning, went back to sleep at 5.58, my alarm went off at six o'clock. Brain is racing through all kinds of things. Lord, come. You reign. You rule. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I love in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What is the first thing the shepherd does for a sheep? He makes him lie down in green pastures. There's a great story, and um, it's in 2 Kings chapter 6. King Aram is an enemy king who is trying to defeat Israel. And he keeps making plans, but every time he makes a plan, the prophet Elisha gets wind of the plan through the Spirit and tells Israel how to defeat the plan so King Aram can't defeat Israel. And so he has decided that the only way he's going to defeat Israel is to take out Elisha. So he sends an army to destroy, to kill the prophet Elijah. And Elisha goes to bed one night along with his servant who is with him. And the next day, the servant wakes up and sees that the city has now been surrounded by this army that King Aram has brought to destroy Elisha. And He says, what are we going to do? And Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. He's looking at an army. And Elisha says, there are more of us than there are of them. And then Elisha prays this prayer. He says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he might see the truth of what's really happening. And when the Lord opens the servant's eyes, he sees that the hills are full of horses and chariots that he does not see without the Lord's vision. He sees certain defeat. Elisha knows that there is an overwhelming victory that is about to happen. It isn't just you. Never has been. God does deliver. John said, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one you do not see is greater than all the things that you do see. And overwhelming victory stands in the future of those who cry out to God for their salvation. The New Testament goes on to talk often 
about the reality of this spiritual battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Stand firm. James says, Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Resist. Sounds like being a pole. God, we often do not see things as they are. I pray that over those who are worshiping together with us this morning, online or right here, that in the midst of the battles that are assaulting the life that Jesus came to give us. You help to see the things that we're not seeing. The assaults are coming from places we don't even realize it, to name the enemy, to identify the battle, to recognize at least that we are in a battle, that our life is opposed and it's not just us. Would you increase our faith to believe that when everything around us says, God will not help you, God will not come through for you, that that is a lie. And you have come through. And you will come through. And that everything that we're going now, going through now, all the challenges, all the struggles, even in those things, God, you are preparing us for a glorious future. May we stand firm, resist the enemy, resist the bully as he seeks to steal life away from us every day. Or let your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.